Well, good morning. It's good to be here with you this morning. I greatly appreciate the privilege to come and share with you. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the book of Ruth. In a moment, we'll read from there. My name is Matt Baker. I pastor a church over near Brazelton, Redeemer Fellowship Church. I had the privilege of preaching here, I believe, four years ago. I went back and looked at my notes this morning. I think it was in the summer of uh, 2014. And so uh, I don't expect you to remember that. In fact, that may be why I was invited back, because you forgot about it. Uh, <laughs> so, but it's a privilege to be here uh, this morning. My wife's with me, Brandon, will be married 15 years in July. And then my four kids, uh, Micah, Nora, Jonah, and baby Samuel, so hopefully he'll keep it in line back there in the back. And my niece uh, Peyton's here with us, visiting from out of town, and my mother-in-law came too, so she's going to make sure to keep me in line. So, uh, but in a moment, we'll uh, be in Ruth, and we're going to look. I know it's a little bit ambitious to try to look an entire book uh, in one sermon, um, so... Uh, but here's the goal. The, the goal, I think, is it beneficial at times if we can get in the air, so to speak, and look at the big picture uh, and see those landmarks that stand out. And then I would encourage you later to go back, get on the ground, and investigate those things further, look into them in more detail. Now, we can preach the whole book all the way through if you want. I'll be glad to do that, but I think you'll get hungry before uh, I were to get done, and I, I don't have much faith in my, uh, my abilities to hold your attention for that long. So what we'll do is we'll do a quick overview of the book of Ruth uh, and, uh, and look there together um, in God's Word. When Brandon, that's my wife's name, by the way, I know that's bizarre, it's Brandon, so let me save you the questions. No, her parents were not hoping for a boy and just named her Brandon anyway. Uh, and uh, no, that's not short for Brandy. That's my favorite. That makes no sense, by the way, when people say that all the time. Is that short for Brandy? Yeah, Brandon is short for Brandy. But anyway, and so, uh, but my wife and I, Brandon, we lived in New Orleans the first two years that we were married. I was in school there at the Baptist Seminary, and after we had moved there, one of her dad's longtime friends had come into town to visit with his family, and my wife had babysat their daughter prior to us being married, and he said, I would like to see Brandon and, and Matt, I didn't really know him that well, while we're here. We'd love to, to get with them. And let's just say they are wealthy, right? And so they said, the plans were made, let's meet us at the hotel lobby. We walked into the hotel lobby, and it was nice, right? It was real nice. I knew I was way out of my league. And so they said, let's go get lunch. Now, I need to give you a little bit of context. Here's the context. We've been married for six months. We're in college, and we are broke, like no money. So when somebody says, let's go get lunch, and you're in that situation, that is an occasion for anxiety. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are you guys hungry? Well, no, actually, we just ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on the way over here, and I've got an extra in my cargo pocket in case someone's hungry. It's like, no, we don't go out to eat for lunch. It's this occasion for anxiety because you're not real sure, are they inviting us in it's Dutch, you know, everybody, every man for himself, or are they inviting us and they're going to pay for it? 
but I didn't really know what to do. I don't really know them and didn't want to be rude, so we just kind of went along. We walk outside to the curb. They call a cab. I've never paid for a cab in my life. We only drove three blocks, you know. I'm like, we could walk. So thankfully, they paid for the cab. And we pull up to the restaurant, and I'm thinking, I recognize the name of this restaurant. Well, this is, and then I remember where I, I recognized it from. When we moved on to campus. The school gave us a guide to the city, right, a little handout guide grocery stores, where to get your hair cut, all these types of things, and a guide to restaurants. And the restaurants were in categories, and they were categorized by dollar signs. One dollar sign, two dollar signs, three dollar signs, four. And this was a restaurant in the four dollar sign category. My anxiety dramatically increased at this point. We walk into the restaurant, they hand us the menus, and it's those menus that don't have prices on it. Now, friends, who does not care about how much food costs? People who have more money than what they know what to do with, right? So my anxiety continues to increase. Their seven to nine-year-old daughter orders soup that I have never even heard of. My anxiety increases. Sir, what would you like to eat? Hmm, uh, I think I'll have the lettuce wedge. That looks good to me. Surely that's like $2. And guys, let me just give you a hint. I went to a nice restaurant another time, and we've never been back because my wife never heard me finish complaining about it. And I ordered the special. I'm a redneck. Special means cheap. No, this was the most expensive thing on the menu. I didn't know that until I got the bill. But anyway, so, so we're, we're there. My anxiety increases yet again. But finally, there comes that moment, and you know what that moment is. One check or two, the server asks. You take a sip of water, right? You want that long pause. Like, please, I really hope that they just say one. You're praying fervently. One check, please. And that spells relief. Why? It's on me. I got this covered. You're thinking, I'm certainly glad. Because if you didn't, I was about to be exposed as the one who had no money. They wouldn't even let me look at a credit card, much less give me a credit card. Right? But think about that. Think about, I've got you covered. Those are the best words that you and I could ever hear when we're exposed and vulnerable. Are they not? For someone else to come along when you're vulnerable, when you're exposed and say, I've got you covered, I've got your back, I am here for you and I'm sufficient where you're not. The reality is, is that all of us, in and of ourselves, are exposed and vulnerable. Every one of us. And the good news of the scripture before us today is that it points us to the only sufficient cover for our lives. It points us to the only one who can truly say to that vulnerability, to that exposure that we have, I've got you covered, and he really does have us covered. So with that in mind, let's look to God's word. Here's what we're going to read. We're going to read from Ruth 2, and we'll come back and look at chapter 1 together. We're going to read from Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. So if you would, stand with me and let's read God's word together. This is the word of the Lord. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, 
Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us to cherish it like we should. Lord, let us join the psalmist. He said that he waited with mouth open, panting for your word. And now in this moment, Lord, we pray that, just as the psalmist said also, that you would answer that, and that you would make your face shine upon us, and that you would give us your word. Give us exactly what we need, for you know even better than we do what we need. Use this time to call lost sinners to faith and repentance, to build up the saints, to transform them from one degree of glory to another more and more into the image of Christ. And do it for your name's sake. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to look at over in chapter 1 is really what I would call a self-exile. I'm going to try to make that case. But we see that in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech. This is significant. It tells us the context in which this is happening. We know that Judges immediately precedes the book of Ruth here in Scripture, the way that it is laid out for us. And we know, if you've read the book of Judges, it is a dark time. We know that there's this theme that's present there, that in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That theme just carries on over here into the book of Ruth. If Judges gives us a more large picture of this time period, Ruth seems to kind of narrow in and focus in on this one particular family and what's happening there. And it says this, in the day of Judges, there was a famine in the land. I think what's going on here is that more than likely, with this difficulty that has come upon the land, there's probably one to two things that's happening here. Either the Lord has brought discipline upon his people because it's the period of judges where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and we see that cycle, this almost like a downward spiral 
happening in the book of Judges. We see that the people do what's right in their own eyes. The Lord brings uh, some discipline against them. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord brings someone to restore them, and then they just continue this cycle. And so more than likely, this is in the midst of that. And this famine has come about because the Lord is disciplining his people because they are not making good on the terms of the covenant in which they accepted with the Lord, or the Lord is teaching them to trust him in the midst of difficulty and adversity. And so it says, in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land, and the man of Bethlehem, so this even tells us in which area in God's, uh, of God's people this is, in what area of the land. What's unique is there's a famine in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem means house of bread, And then what's also unique is that the man that we're focusing on is Elimelech, and his name literally means, my God is king. But notice what he's going to do. He's going to leave the land that the Lord, his God is king, that the Lord delivered them into, gave them when he brought them in the covenant, and he's going to leave that land, leave that kingship that, the, of their God, and he's going to go out on his own into, ironically, the land of Moab, which is notorious for its, uh, its reputation of pulling God's people away from him, and that's where he's going to go and seek refuge. See, friends, what's happening here in the beginning of this chapter is a sort of self-exile. What's happening here, what we need to know theologically is if the Lord has delivered them into this land, and this is God's promise, what should be happening is not them turning and leaving the land. Instead, there should be a turning of repentance and repenting before the Lord and begging for his mercy and his grace so that he would make provision for them. That's what should be happening. But instead, they will turn and they will leave. We'll come back to that in a minute, but what we want to contrast there in just a moment is worldly wisdom versus trusting the Lord. Because they took matters into their own hands and they relied on their own wisdom instead of trusting God's providence and trusting the word of the Lord. We'll come back in just a moment to that. But in verses 3 and 5, this is what happens. We're told that the, man, the name of the man was Elimelech, that his wife was Naomi. That's verse 2. They had two sons, Malon and Kilion. And uh, it says that they were from the specific region in Bethlehem, in Judah. And it says they went to the country of Moab and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. So the leader of the family dies while they're there in Moab. And then it says, then they went into the country of Moab. Elimelech, he dies and she is left with her two sons. Now look at this, verse 4. They took Moabite wives. The names of the wives were Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And it says, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, what's going to happen? Look at verse 6. It says, then she rose with her daughters-in-law, and said, let's return from the country of Moab. For she heard that in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. Now notice that, that the Lord had visited his people. Naomi included in that. But Naomi has exiled herself away from the Lord's people. And the Lord has visited his people and has given them provision. 
What's interesting that we need to notice, first of all, with this horrific suffering that Naomi's going through, we're not making light of it. She's lost a husband, that would be bad enough. And then as any parent in here would know, it would be almost unbearable as to lose one child, much less two. But apart from this difficulty that's come into her life, would Naomi have ever returned? Or would she have been content to stay in Moab? And so we see that this is going to turn her to return back to Bethlehem, back to her people. Naomi's lost her husband and both sons, and she'll decide to return home. But on the way home, verses 8 through 14, this is where we'll move a little bit quicker, we see that she tries to urge the two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, return. I have nothing to offer you. Go. You're young. Find husbands. Return to your people. And at one point even says, return to your gods. It's an emotional scene. You should go and read it. What happens is eventually Orpah will return. After tears and embrace, she'll return back to her people. But Ruth says, no way. I'm not going. It's, it's one of the most moving passages in all the Bible. It's there in verse 15, and we will read Ruth's words. It's really a vow that she makes. And with each statement, it just ratchets up the intensity of this vow that she's making. Look there in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So this is Naomi saying, Ruth, go. Orpah has come to her senses. She's going to go there. She's going to be provided for. I have nothing to give you guys. We're going back to my land. You'll be foreigners there. But look at what happens in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. All right, now notice how the intensity just ratchets up. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. I'm leaving my people. And your God shall be my God. And then notice this. And where you die, I will die and there be buried. Now look, and may the Lord, she uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh, do so to me. She's taking a vow before the Lord and asking the Lord to bring a curse upon her. And more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Now friends, that's a beautiful, beautiful vow. I mean, that's, that's the vow that people will take. We write it and frame it and put it on our walls, right? We'll use it in our wedding ceremonies, but this is not a marriage. This, this, is, this is a vow of friendship. There's their family, yes, but, but Naomi's already saying, you're free to leave, but Ruth's saying, I am not. I am this committed. I am with you. Now, I believe, and we'll make the case even more strongly in chapter 2, Naomi, I mean, Ruth, she's converted She is making commitment to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. She's called him to be a witness to this vow and to bring curse upon her if she breaks. And then the passage that we read in verse 2 a moment ago, Boaz says, the God of whom you have come to take refuge under. It's who her faith is in. She's trusting. Notice the flip here. She, She abandons all worldly wisdom. 
Naomi's saying what makes sense in the eyes of the world is that you go back here where you have best opportunity. There is nothing here for you. And what she says is when everything looks like it's on this side and it makes sense in the eyes of the world and nothing over here makes sense, but there's only God over here, I'll go over here. I'll follow the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what a challenge for us this morning. What a challenge for us this morning. We see that she says, no, I'm, I'm going with you. Nevertheless, Ruth will return, trusting the Lord with Naomi. Now we see in verses 19 verse, through 22 of chapter 1 that upon the return, we notice this, this, this change in what's going on. We, we notice this, this unique thing that, that Naomi says. The women of the town, they recognize, is that not Naomi? And Naomi responds, and she says, you, you don't call me Naomi, which means what? It means pleasant. It's there in the footnotes of your ESV translation, if you have it. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me bitter. She says, I, I went away full, and I'm returning empty. Friends, we are not always honest in the midst of difficulty, are we? Now, I know what Naomi means. Uh, Naomi means I went away full with my husband and my sons. I've come back empty without them. As we move forward, we'll see the, the importance of, of having a future of having those to go on, to, to continue on, to, to have the land. Because, because without having land and God's people and your name being perpetuated, it says that though you never existed and you've just been blotted out and wiped out completely. There's a couple of things that Naomi's not being entirely honest about. She didn't really go away full, right? She went away hungry. She left because she wanted food. That's why her and Elimelech left. She, she didn't blame it on Elimelech. Let's, let's give her credit there. I, I think she probably could have. I was just following my husband, but she says I. So she wasn't entirely honest about the situation in which she left under. She didn't leave under the best of circumstances. She had want and left. And she's coming back and she says, I am coming back empty. Really empty? That's just not true, is it? Because who is standing beside her? Ruth. I mean, the, the, the language in the original Hebrew is striking. When, 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 when Ruth makes this vow to Naomi, and we're so moved by that, look at verse 18. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. She didn't come to tears and say, that's the most beautiful thing anybody's ever said to me. She just said, fine. I just, I won't say another word. Let's just, let's just, Let's just go on back. <laughs> and then now here is Ruth standing beside Naomi. And here's Naomi saying, I've come back empty. Imagine how you feel if you're Ruth. Well, I'm a nothing. I've come back with Naomi. And then there at the end, in the last verse of chapter 1, it says, so Naomi returned, verse 22, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. There's this glimpse of hope. They've come to the house of bread, and it's the beginning of the barley harvest. 
There's a couple of things I want us to notice before we depart from chapter 1, and we'll spend the longest amount of time in chapter 1, so breathe a sigh of relief. But there in chapter 1, what I want us to see, and what I, we've already alluded to it, is that we too are going to be tempted to adopt worldly wisdom and to forsake God's plan. This is what Elimelech and Naomi did. Similarly, Orpah, she saw with her eyes what, what the world had to offer. She saw with worldly wisdom, and she left and, and went that way. But, but Ruth stands out as one that, that when everything seems to make sense to go here, and there's nothing over here, but the Lord will go with the Lord. Friends, there are many temptations for us to do the same. When marriage gets difficult, our culture will just say, it's all about your self-fulfillment, which is not what God's Word says. It's all about you being happy. You just look out for you, and you just get out of that marriage. That's worldly wisdom. But God's Word gives us His plan for marriage. In the midst of the church... When God calls us in the covenant community to be committed to one another, when things just don't go well in the church and when things don't look the way, our needs aren't being serviced and served the way that they should be, the world just says, hey, just go out. It's just like switching from Kroger to Publix. Find another one and just switch and be fulfilled and find what suits your personal preferences because we have an ecclesiastical buffet in this culture. You just go and you pick. In fact, you just, you just mix and match three or four churches. Go here for Sunday school. Go here for contemporary worship. Go over here for small groups. You just pick what you want. But friends, God calls us in his, in his word to be committed to the church. When those people start to care about you and get involved in your life, your temptation is going to be, who do you think you are to get up in my business? The world tells you they don't love you or they wouldn't, they wouldn't be in your business. The Bible says that we love one another, so we graciously and lovingly speak the truth to one another and we exhort one another every day as long as it's called today and warn one another and we spur one another up in love and good works, Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 10. That is what we are called to do. What about in our evangelism? Worldly wisdom will say that the gospel needs some help. Worldly wisdom would tell us that, that, that we need, Jesus needs a PR rep, right? Worldly wisdom would tell us that we need to adopt some gimmicks, that we just need to give half-truths and just tell the good news and don't tell the bad news, and, and that we should adopt some sort of manipulation, and then we can have more fruitful evangelism. God's Word says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. And He says, just get up and proclaim the gospel, and then He will do the saving, not our manipulation. Friends, we're tempted all the time to adopt worldly wisdom. And to marry up with half-truths. But half-truths, as J.I. Packer says, parading as whole truths are complete untruths. We're called to stand on God's word and God's wisdom. And not our own. There in chapter 2, we see a gracious providence. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man. Now you need to note that because it's incredibly important. He's a noble man. He's a worthy man. He's of the clan of Elimelech. 
He's family. So the, the narrator here is giving us a, a glimpse, giving us some insight that obviously Ruth does not have. His name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go and glean the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said, go, my daughter. Now, I want you to notice something because this is striking to me. I'm under the impression that Naomi here is in some sort of depression. I mean, she's just sitting there. She's just going to die. But what does Ruth say? Ruth's the foreigner. She's the one who is the most marginalized in the whole culture. And she says, let me go out and see if I can find us something to eat. Notice this is, this is Naomi saying, I've come back with nobody. And the nobody that she's come back with says, let me go get us something to eat or we're going to die. She rises early in the morning and says, let me go out and, and just see whose sight I might find some favor. And, and Naomi says, go, my daughter. I mean, just notice that. You can notice how so often that we are blind to God's grace in our lives. I've come back empty. No, you've got Ruth. And Ruth isn't just somebody. She's somebody extraordinary. She's going to go out. and She's going to diligently work. And that's really what chapter 2 lays out for us. Look at verse 3. We've got to note this. Zoom in here. We'll try to summarize the rest of the chapter. So she set out and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now we've been introduced to Boaz. We know that he's family of Elimelech. And, and what's unique about the text here is the text is trying to indicate to us. She just happened, right? As chanced, chanced it. It's almost literally how you would just trans, translate that from the Hebrew. Or happenstance happened to have it. What the, what the writer of this, of this book is telling us is that Ruth is completely oblivious to where she is. She doesn't know that she's in the field of Boaz, but there is some work of providence going on here of God's grace that she just chanced, chanced it, that she ended up in Boaz's field. As happenstance happened to have it, what the Bible is telling us is this is no just chance. This is the Lord's gracious providence that she's in Boaz's field. And so we see Boaz is called, he's introduced as this worthy man, that he's a kinsman redeemer. And then we see there in verses 4 through 5, as Boaz comes out, it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, Now this is indication much more so of how worthy of a man he is, that he is a man who honors the Lord. Notice his greeting, the Lord be with you. That's, that's a covenantal greeting, Yahweh be with you. And then, and then notice how his workers respond. It seems that they respect him. The Lord bless you. The Boaz said to his young man in charge of, the young man in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is a young Moabite who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came. And she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And so we see that Naomi, I mean, Ruth is out there working hard. We understand this gleaning that what's going on is the Lord's provision. 
That the Lord always cares about those who are on the margins of society. The Lord always cares about those who have no voice and, and who can quickly be overlooked and overrun. The Lord has made provision in his word that, that they, should not, they should not harvest so heavily. They should leave the corners of the field. And they should not over-harvest the fields. They should leave so that those who are in need can come out and they can gather for themselves some food. And this is exactly what Ruth is doing. She's there and she's working hard. What I, what I want you to notice is there's a unique interaction that happens here that, that we read, so we won't read it again. But Boaz comes to her and he, and he says to her, they, they, they interact. And, and notice what happens. He says, he makes this, this provision for her that he does not have to make. He says, hey, you, you don't go to another field. Later, he'll give instruction to his workers not to reproach her. Basically, she's a foreigner. If she steps out of line with our custom, she doesn't know any better. Don't reproach her for that. Allow her to drink from our vessels. He provides lunch for her. He gives her a, a special condiment there that she can dip uh, her food in. All these things were beyond what he had to do. And he tells her, he, he makes this provision for her, but, but I love... Ruth's response as well. There in verse 10, she says, she doesn't have this entitlement. She says, the Bible says she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She has this humility. She's been met with this grace, and she responds in this humility. Why have I found favor in your eyes? You should take notice of me. Since I'm a foreigner, you don't have to pay any attention to me. You could just run me over. Boaz said to her, all that you've done, for your mother-in-law, since the death of, her, of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land. You left your people. You left everything. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord. That's that covenantal name, Yahweh. The God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. See, Ruth is trusting in the God of Israel. She's trusting the Lord. And she responds in humility to this grace that she has received. And we see that she sent away with this great abundance. She sent away with this abundance. She, takes, she didn't eat all of her lunch. She takes the rest of it home so that Naomi can eat. She, she leaves with somewhere around 30 pounds right, of grain is what she's coming back with. Something that would typically probably have taken weeks to attain for someone in her position. They, they give her an abundance. And now notice, because there's a turning point here at the end of chapter 2. She returns in verse 21 at the end of chapter 2. And she's, she's speaking to Naomi. It says, Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young women until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest you go into another field and be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley harvest, barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. As she comes back, the turning point that seems to happen is when Naomi finds out that it's Boaz. We see that there in verse 19. It says, the man's name with whom I worked is Boaz. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed or may be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said to her, the man is a close relative of ours. It's at this point as, that, as though Naomi's antenna goes up. Wait a minute, Boaz. 
He's a kinsman redeemer. It's as though she's, she's seeing what way all, all is not lost. Because if he redeems, there will be a line of Elimelech. Our family name will go on and our land will not be lost and we will continue with our inheritance. And that's what leads to the events of chapter 3. And in chapter 3, I would just title that Covered. We see a gracious providence there in chapter 2 that the Lord providentially brought her to the field of Boaz. Now we're going to see this covering that's going to happen there in chapter 3. To be honest, the events, the advice that Naomi gives is somewhat bizarre and unorthodox. It's, It's very foreign to us. What's going on there? There's a lot of debate. You can go and read commentaries if you'd like about all that is going on here. But it's unique. What's happening is that Naomi's telling Ruth to go, essentially, is how I'd summarize it, and just throw herself at the feet of Boaz. Throw herself upon his mercy and grace and ask him to be her redeemer. She, she, there's a plan here. Well, let's just go and ask Boaz to be the redeemer. And, and we see that, that she gives her these instructions that he'll be out at the threshing floor and to go out there. And tonight, there's definitely some risk there. If there's risk for, for Ruth to go out in other fields during the middle of the day, there's certainly risk for her to go out at night. And she tells him that after he's done, and he's, after he's done on the threshing floor and he's eaten and he's, and he's drank and he's full and he's satisfied and he goes to sleep, he'll sleep out there with the fruit of the crop so that someone else would not come and steal it. She says, just go and Throw yourself at his feet. Uncover his feet so they would wake him and lie down there and he'll tell you what to do. Now look at verse 5. It says, all that you say, this is Ruth replying, all that you say I will do. And so she went down to the threshing floor and she did just as her mother-in-law said. She did everything she said, but notice something because what's interesting is that she adds something to it. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, went to lie down at the end of the heap of the grain, she came and she softly uncovered his feet and she lay down. And at midnight the man was startled and he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Now notice, this is, this is where she adds on to what the instruction was from Naomi. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. What she's doing is she's saying, this blessing that you said to me the first day that we met on the field, that may the Lord provide under whose wings I've come to take refuge, would you be the instrument by which God would answer that blessing? Would you be the one who would be my redeemer? Would you be the one who would be the answer to your own prayer so that the Lord would use you as an instrument to be my redeemer and my provision and my protector. Now notice what happens there in those verses that follow. Boaz says, this kindness that you've shown me is greater than the last. Probably what he means is just your commitment to the family and leaving your homeland and coming here with Naomi. He says, you didn't go after younger redeemers. We're, we're introduced to there and the our younger men we're introduced there in the end of the chapter that there's another redeemer closer. What that means is there's a, close, there's a family member who is closer to the family of Elimelech who has first right of redemption. Probably he was younger, and he says, you didn't go after him, you, you came to me. And, and so Boaz is flattered by that. 
But Boaz is a noble man. Boaz says, we, I'm willing to do this, but it's got to be done rightly. It's got to be done rightly. And he says, this man has first right. And so only if he denies his right, I come next, then I'll take it. Now, here's something you can go and read chapter 3 later. What I want you to notice is what Boaz could have done versus what he did do. Because what he could have done is he could have said, now you go to that redeemer and ask him if he'll be your redeemer. He doesn't do that. He takes up her cause. I mean, think about that. She's a vulnerable foreigner there in a foreign land. He doesn't leave her to herself and say, you go and find out from him if he's willing to do this. And if, if he's not, then come back to me. And I'll, he goes, no, I'm going to settle this today. We'll settle it first thing in the morning. I'm going to take up your cause. I'm going to be your advocate. I am going to make sure that this is done rightly. And if he won't redeem you, I will. Now, there's a couple of ways that redemption can work. What's going on in Ruth seems to be combining some instructions that are there in Scripture. If someone was found themselves in some sort of debtor's slavery, a family member, a kinsman redeemer could come and could buy them out of that. They could, they could pay off that debt and they could free them from that, that work enslavement that they were seeking to pay the debt back. If, if they had to put up their land for money, then the kinsman redeemer could come and could buy that land uh, and pay that debt so that they would have their land that the Lord had given to them and that their family could continue on in it. And then we see this instruction of, of leveret marriage. And so it seems to be just combining of this redemption here in the book of Ruth. And leveret marriage was really between brothers. If one brother died without an heir, his brother was to give him an heir through his widow so that his name would continue on. And so here, what we need to understand is that in this culture, as we've already seen, that, that widows would have been on the margin, especially a foreigner who's also a widow. They would not have someone to protect, provide for them, and um, to, to continue on in a family. They would have had to resort to horrific things to make ends meet and still live in such horrific poverty on the margin, margins of society being used and abused by others. But here, Boaz says, I, I, I will take up your cause and I'll make sure that this is done. And so what we see in chapter 4 is that happening. Really what we see is this, this from emptiness to fullness. That's what's going to happen there in chapter 4. Boaz goes the next morning, it says, verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down. Why? It's like the courthouse. The gate in that time, that's where all official business would take place. And so he goes there to the gate, that's the courthouse essentially, and behold, the Redeemer. It's once again one of those unique uh, moments of providence. It just, oh, hi, there he is. Imagine that, you know, right where he needs to be. And behold, the Redeemer. So Boaz spoke to him and he said, turn aside, friend. Now what I want you to notice, because this is very significant. We don't ever find out this man's name. Boaz knows his name. He's in his family. And he says, turn aside, almost literally, Mr. So-and-so. That's what N. DeGuid says in his commentary. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, turn, turn aside. That's significant. Hold on to it. He says, turn aside, friend, and sit down. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders with him. Why? Because official business need to have witnesses. 
And so this is, this is going to, Boaz is a noble man. He's going to make sure this is all documented properly with the right witnesses. In a minute, there'll be the exchanging of sandals, which is bizarre to us, but it's like notarized documents in their time period. And so he takes them in there. They sit down, and they're in an official proceeding at this moment. And he said to the Redeemer, see, still no name, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, and she's selling a parcel of land that belonged to the relative Elimelech. All right, so there's that, there's that redemption of, of property. So I thought I would tell you of it, saying, buy it in the presence of these sitting here, in the presence of the elders of the people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is none besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. So the man says, let me redeem it. Now, let's find out what his thinking is. It's going to be very clear in just a moment. Here's his thinking. If I redeem it, if they can't ever buy it back in the year of Jubilee, I would give it to the heirs of Elimelech. But Elimelech doesn't have any heirs, so in the year of Jubilee, I don't have to give it back to him. I just get to keep it for myself, and it's more land and more capital and more money for me. But what Boaz says next causes his plan to completely fall apart. Notice what he said. He says, I'll redeem it. And then Boaz said, the day that you buy it, the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. Now, (laughs) notice what happens. He's like, oh, wait a minute. So this field comes with baggage. That's two more mouths i got to feed. That's Ruth and Naomi. And then we're supposed to give an heir, so that means on the year of Jubilee, the field's going to go back to Elimelech's heir. This is, going to co- this is not a good business deal. This is going to cost me more money. I'm not going to make any money. I don't want to do this unless I impair my own inheritance. What he means is I'm impairing my inheritance going forward for my heirs, my property, my namesake. Here's why this is all so significant. And this insight as I mentioned him just a moment ago, comes from Ian DeGuid in his commentary. Here's what's happening. The Redeemer is acting selfishly, thinking about his own name and his own glory. And we don't even know who he is. He's nameless, Mr. So-and-so. His main concern was him, and nobody knows who he is. Boaz act selflessly and we all know who he is Boaz is not concerned with his name with his fame with his glory he is thinking of others and he is given name and fame by God in his word friends let me tell you what this is at work this is Matthew 10 39 in in happening whoever finds his life will lose it But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows me, (laughs) that's what Boaz is doing. Mr. So-and-so is thinking about me, myself, and I looking out for number one. And the very thing that he was trying to accomplish, preserve his own inheritance and his own name, all falls and crumbles in the ashes 
And the very thing that Boaz doesn't make his concern, his concern is honoring the Lord, and the Lord remembers his name. It's an amazing, amazing thing right here at play. So here's what happens as we move forward. Boaz and Ruth, they're married, and, and they're given a son. There's the legal proceedings, they, they happen. Verse 13, the marriage happens, and they're bore, she bore a son. It says, then the women said to Naomi, I'm always struck by this. I mean, Ruth, the book's named after her. We, we see her, her noble actions, but, but notice God's grace with Naomi. I mean, the, the book starts with her, and it ends uh, focusing on her. It says that, that there, that Naomi, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has left you this day, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And it says, may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is more to you than seven sons. Remember, I came back empty. I don't have anybody. All, my husband, my sons are dead. Hey, the Lord sent you back with a daughter-in-law who is better than seven sons. Seven, the number of perfection. I mean, you can just see the, the Bible shot through here with sending these messages. She has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and she laid him in her lap and she became his nurse. And the women the neighborhood gave him a name saying, all this, this activity of the broader community shows us there's something really large happening here. The son has been born to Naomi, the name, and they named him Obed. He, and his, he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Friends, if you know your Bible, you know over in Matthew 1 that, that Boaz's his name is there in the genealogy of Christ. We, we, we know that this redeemer, this, this child that comes from this, it provides for them. Obed is the father of Jesse, he's the father of David, great King David. But great King David has a greater son, and his name is Jesus. Look at how the Lord works. Maybe you're here this morning and, 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 and you think about how Boaz took up Ruth's cause and he acted on her behalf at his own expense. Do you need someone like that? I mean, we use this humorous story at the beginning about someone covering one meal, but just think about that. Don't we all long for someone who would, just, who would really take up our cause, who we know would always be for us as an advocate and who would take up our, own, our cause at their own expense? The reality is whether or not you think you need someone like that or not, you absolutely do. The reality is, is that, that you need someone better than Boaz. Boaz is not going to cut it. So you're going to stand before a holy God one day and you're going to give an account for your life. This God created you and he lays claim to you and you will give an account for the way that you lived your life. And the Bible tells us is that we are all sinners and we have rebelled against that holy God that we have sought to be our own gods. We've been like Mr. So-and-so and thought about me, ourselves, and I, and our name and our fame, and we have tried to usurp his authority and assert ourselves, and it has led us to sin, shame, and ruin. It's the hell and the death and the sin that we sang about a moment ago. But the good news is, is that there's one better than Boaz who took up your cause to provide for you at his own expense. It's in the line of Boaz, but it's Boaz's greater son, and it's David's greater son. His name is Jesus, and he came and he lived the life that we could not live, and he went to the cross paying our debt so that we could be redeemed from the sin that enslaves us and the death and hell that awaits us that we cannot free ourselves from. We cannot bring victory in our own lives. He has done it for us through his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension, and his soon return. His name is Jesus. And for any who would look to him and would say, you know what, I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, I need a Savior, and would cling to him in faith, he offers that redemption. That's your greatest need this morning. The, good, the bad news is you have need beyond what you even realize. The good news is God has sent someone far better than Boaz to meet that need. And he is the one who at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. This morning, friend, you need to look to Christ for salvation. If you have questions about that, you can come and ask me. You can ask someone sitting near you. You're surrounded by people who love the gospel and would love to talk to you about it. But that is an invitation that demands a response. And no response is a response. Christian, let us just take a moment and be amazed by God's grace. Just be amazed because this story is our story. Just just think about it for a moment. Naomi left God's people in God's land. She brought plight on herself. She blamed God but God was gracious to her and provided a redeemer. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Adam to me. We're going to reach and grasp for something that's not ours. We're going to eat of what God told us not to eat of. God's going to confront us, and I'm going to say, the woman that you gave me, this is your fault, God. But the Lord is gracious. And even in issuing that curse, he said, there's going to be one who will come who will crush the head of the serpent. Friends, this is our story. This story of redemption is your story and my story if you are in Christ. That God has provided a redeemer. Maybe you're here this morning and you're suffering and I just want to tell you, maybe, maybe that's your call. Don't, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. And I'm not making light of your suffering. Your suffering is like Naomi's. It's real. It's real. It's difficult. It's almost crushing. But Christian, what I want you to understand is that like Naomi, she wasn't completely empty and neither are you. She had Ruth. And through Ruth and Boaz, God brought redemption and she held a promise in her lap at the end of her life. And that promise, Christian, has come into his fullness in Christ Jesus. And no matter what kind of suffering you are experiencing, you are not completely empty. That just as Naomi held that promise in her lap, you hold the fullness of that promise of Jesus Christ in your heart. And this morning, no matter what you're going through, you are not empty. And God is faithful and he always makes good on his word. And just as he brought things forward from Obed to Christ through his death and resurrection, he is sure to bring the fullness of that promise in making all things new and setting everything right at the return of Christ. Hold fast to that promise, friend. And brothers and sisters, one more thing. Think of the selflessness of Boaz. Think about that. He's a great model for us. Yes, Christ is our Savior first. But second, He is our example. We are called to imitate God our Father in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, I mean 5, 1 and 2. Just think about the church for a moment in light of that. Just think about if in the church we denied ourselves, 
we would be able to consider the interest of others and not ours only, Philippians chapter 2. Just think about that if in the church we denied ourselves, we would be able to better give ourselves, our times and our gifts, for the mutual upbuilding of our brothers and sisters that we're in covenant with, speaking the truth of them in love and looking out for them and seeking to help them as we walk side by side in an effort to live a life worthy of the calling of which we have been called. Philippians 1, 27 through 29. Just think about that. But it will take us denying ourselves. Just think about it. if we denied ourselves, we could be less concerned for our own glory and our own fame, and we could be more concerned for the Lord's glory, thus fueling our evangelism. Could it be that if more of our churches were committed to dying to self, less of our churches would be dying? This kind of self-denial will only happen when we're rooted and grounded in Christ. And friends, this is a very real everyday walk, only fueled by his grace. And it starts the moment that the benediction's given and we walk out these doors. Let's pray.